welcome to the Fit Life with Jessica podcast, where we talk about how to create and maintain healthy habits with our fitness, nutrition, and overall well-being. This is a place where you can come to get real life, health, and fitness advice from a busy working mama who has a passion for helping others find their way to health and happiness. We're all in this crazy journey together, so why not lean on and lift each other up in the process? All right, welcome back to another episode of the Fit Life with Jessica podcast. One of my favorite things to do is to bring you VIP guest speakers, to bring you some experts in other areas of the health and wellness world. And I just love hearing from other people. So today I have the joy of chatting with Dr. Candace Setti. And welcome to the show. Like, I'm so happy to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. Yeah. So for our listeners, followers who maybe aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Well, I am Dr. Candace Setti. I am AKA the weight loss therapist online. I am a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in uh, weight loss, weight management, self-sabotage, insomnia, and eating disorders. Um, and, you know, because of my, my unique specialty, I'm also a certified weight management specialist, a certified insomnia treatment clinician, a certified personal trainer, and a certified nutrition coach, because I like to work with pe- the people I work with basically in all aspects of their life to address everything that um, plays a role in this because we know when we talk about weight management in particular, the whole idea of just calories in, calories out is way oversimplified and way outdated. And we know there are so many other factors that tie into not just weight loss and weight management, but our relationship with food overall. So I like to come at it from a pretty holistic perspective. Um, so I work, uh, you know, one-on-one with individuals, um, on addressing some of the stuff in more of a therapeutic modality. And then I also have, you know, a a whole bunch of programs online for people who want to go the DIY approach and, you know, work on things in their own time in their own way. Um, so that's essentially who I am and what I do. Awesome. It's so interesting. You said what you said. There was one line in there that I picked up and I, I said the same sentence to a client I was just speaking with an hour ago. And it said, we tend to oversimplify this whole weight loss wellness thing. We think mm-hmm. that it's simply food and exercise calories in calories out, but it is so complex. Like we, so as complex. humans, it's like a gift, like it's a blessing, but also sometimes a curse that it is so complex, like our whole being, right? There's so much to this weight loss and wellness and all of these things. And so uh, that's interesting. You said that exact line was literally what I just said this morning, and I could not be any more aligned with what you're saying, that it really is this holistic approach to wellness. It's your emotional health. It's your mental health. It's your spiritual health, your physical health, your relationship with food. Like there's so much to it. So I love this. I can't wait to dive in. All right. (laughs) Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Like, have you always done this? Was this a career change for you? Like what, what got you into this field? Um, some of both. Um, so I, when I started out in private practice a long time ago, um, I specialized in working on, um, self-esteem and body image which sort of naturally morphed into eating disorders. 
Mm. And so that became something I, I started getting more education in and started specializing in. And then concurrently, I went through my own experience with weight loss, my own experience with diet dependence, and, you know, ultimately realizing that breaking that and learning how to kind of manage my own weight in, in a more sustainable way. And, you know, what that meant obviously is, is, is lifestyle change, behavioral change, cognitive change, understanding and healing my relationship with food, my relationship with my body, all of that stuff. And through that experience, I, I realized that everybody I worked with was struggling with the same thing. And all of them had been, you know, chronic yo-yo dieters on and off a diet and feeling more and more frustrated, getting less and less benefit and wanting a different way. So I kind of looked at what I had done for myself and thought there's, there's gotta be a way to take this and make it work for other people because everybody is wanting this and nobody knows what to do. Mm. So that's kind of when I went back and started getting more, more education, more certification, more training, all of that to be able to do that. And, and, and that's basically what I did. I, I took what I did for myself and, and applied it to everybody I worked with, you know, in a very customized way, because I don't believe in anything that's one size fits all. So, you know, just taking the, the model of what I did for myself and applying it to everybody I work with. And that's, that's when I, I did this little pivot to address weight loss and weight management. And through that process, I learned, you know, a couple things. One that that sleep is such an insanely huge part of this, and stress is such an insanely huge part of it. So uh, that's when I became an insomnia treatment clinician because so many people that I work with struggle with insomnia, and I also became a certified stress management specialist because stress is probably the biggest hindrance to weight loss. And I tell mm -hmm. people all the time going back to the oversimplification idea is you could be eating, you know, boiled chicken and broccoli all day long. And if your stress level is through the roof, it won't matter. That mm -hmm. will supersede everything, right? Your, your endocrine system will overtake everything. And, you know, it's a, it's a great way to exemplify the idea that it's not just calories in, calories out. There's oh. so much more going on in your body and it's so much more complicated than that. So it's impossible to, to look at weight loss without looking at stress. Um, so that's sort of how I, I got into it in a, in a very simplified way to say it was through my own experience with weight loss and realizing that, you know, there had to be another way beyond just dieting. Absolutely. I love what you said about sleep and stress. It kind of feels like those are kind of the invisible factors, right? Like yeah. we cannot see them. They are intangible and it's this elusive thought, you know, that like, well, we have to get better sleep and we have to, you know, reduce our stress. If there was, you know, one or two little sound bites, like if you take nothing else from this podcast, like if you could do one thing to help your sleep and one thing to help your stress levels, <laughs> what, what do you think those might be? It seems really like a simple, quick thing, but yeah, well, there's and gotta be a, very a baby similar, step, right? I mean, helping your sleep helps your stress and helping your stress helps your sleep. So they kind of go hand in hand. If you're sleeping better, you, you have better resources for stress management. If you're managing your stress, well, you're probably sleeping better. So they do go hand in hand. Um, and I, I tend to talk about proactive measures you can take for both. Um, things like simply eating well, 
and how eating well has an impact on your endocrine system and has an impact on your stress and how um, exercise, right? Not just I'm working out to burn the most amount of calories possible, but I'm moving my body. I'm exerting my body and how that has a, has a stress management aspect to it, how that has a sleep management aspect to it. Self-care and taking time out to take care of yourself, to do things that make you feel good, to do things that are just for you without feeling bad about that and making that a priority, carving out the time for that and the impact that has on stress reduction, that in, the impact that has on benefiting your sleep. And then even things like relaxation strategies, whether that be deep breathing exercises or meditation or stretching or yoga, or simply taking a few minutes to take a few deep breaths and what that does to calm your central nervous system and how that has an impact on stress management and how that ultimately has an impact on sleep as well. So I look at all of those things with everybody from a proactive standpoint, because they do impact this whole stress track and this whole sleep track at the same time. That's a good way to think about it, that they are kind of like reciprocal. They help each other. And I, it's funny you talked about being proactive. I think I just made an Instagram post a couple of weeks recently. That was, are you being proactive or reactive with Mm -hmm. your health and wellness? And things like you mentioned, you know, eating well to fuel your body and moving your body, not just to see how sweaty you can get, but to, you know, truly help discharge some of this energy and to help your mindset too. All of these things are considered proactive versus like, oh crap, I'm going to be in a wedding in June. I have Uh to lose 10 pounds, right? That's very, this very reactive, like, um, quick thinking, short-term, very just like oftentimes restrictive approaches when we're talking about health. So something as simple as like you said, going for a walk or taking some deep breaths. I love doing meditations before bed. I don't do them every night, but I have found some really great like sleep meditations that help you like 10 minutes. And it just kind of helps you wind down when you have that like overactive brain, when you're just like, I have 17 things on my Mm to-do list and don't forget this. And the kids have, you know, wear the color blue day tomorrow. And did you pack lunches? (laughs) You know, there's so many things that we as women and moms are thinking of, And, you know, just to kind of quiet the brain and calm the brain and just to take a few minutes for you, whether that's a meditation or to take a, you know, a hot shower at the end of the night, like these little simple things that bring you joy can help in so many small and big ways. I think sometimes we just forget, like, what do I like? Mm -hmm. What makes me happy? What brings me joy? And can I add some more of those things in my life to, like you said, proactively reduce that stress to really help this whole being? Well, and it's funny you say, sometimes we forget because I, I ask my clients this all the time, right? What makes you happy? What brings you joy? And you'd be surprised how many times people go, um, hmm. And they're stumped. I mean, they really struggle to identify it because clearly it's not a part of their life. It's not something they prioritize and they've lost touch with it as a result. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how powerful it can be to find that again and to bring that into your life, even in the smallest ways. Like you mentioned the idea of like maybe taking a hot shower at the end of the day just feels really good and feels like me time and feels really comforting or maybe listening to a sleep story or sleep meditation at night just makes me feel good. 
You know, I talk to people about the idea of their bed and making their bed be someplace they love to the point where they're like super excited to get mm-hmm. into bed at night. And it's just, ah, oh, this is so great. I love it here. And I'm so excited to be here. But these little things that you find that bring you joy are so powerful. And when we are spread so thin and have so many other things and people and priorities in our life, we lose touch with that. And it's, it's really powerful to bring that back into your life. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast recently and I assigned this to some homework for a client. I said, I want you to make a joy list and I want you to just write out as many things as you can. And it could be something so tiny or something so big that just brings you joy. And it can be something lavish and extravagant, or it can be something so tiny and mundane and just like simple. But when you, the act of writing this out was so powerful for me. And then I'm like, okay, well, I can actually schedule these things in, you know, if Mm -hmm. if going to a coffee shop and working for a day, like I love dreamy vibey coffee shops with latte art and like all the things, (laughs) right. I can get a boatload done at a vibey coffee shop. So like, okay, well, if I know that, then like, let me schedule that in, you know, on a day that I'm not interviewing Dr. Candace, (laughs) maybe I can go to a coffee shop and work right little but if you don't take the time to think about that, like you said, mm-hmm. and to the act of writing it out, just a simple joy, what brings me joy? Yep. Solo with the kids, with the fam, with your partner, whatever that might be. And like schedule that in. And you never sometimes know how powerful. it's really, really small things. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, you know, watching puppy videos on YouTube that <laughs> could take a couple minutes, but bring a huge smile to your face and make you feel good and release oxytocin and mm. all of this, this feel good stuff. And it doesn't have to be, you know, monumental. It doesn't have to be like, okay, how can I find a day when I have nothing and I can get to a coffee shop? Those things are great, but sometimes it's things that take just a couple minutes. And again, we do need to schedule them and we do need to plan them. We do need to say, I am going to put five minutes aside to watch puppy videos on YouTube. And, you know, it's little things like that. It could be making a phone call to somebody you haven't talked Mm. to in a long time. It could be looking through old photos. It could be watching a movie from when you were a kid that you just love and just makes you feel good. It's the littlest things and they have so much power. I love that. I mean, I'm here for the puppy videos. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) My kids get a lot of joy out of watching the old school AFV. Does anybody remember America's funniest videos? Like, Oh yeah. From the night. They don't like the new, Uh they like the old ones from the nineties and two thousands. And it's like the cheesiest funny videos, I guess before, you know, before we had TikTok and Instagram is right. Send in your videos to AFV and they get so much stink and joy out of watching like 30 minutes of this show in the evening. And it's like a great reminder, you know, like puppies and kitties and people falling down, like people falling. Yeah. It's funny. (laughs) (laughs) It makes you laugh and it releases those feel good hormones. I love it. I'm curious on, on your own journey of, like you said, weight loss and finding this really like ultimate health where you are, like, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned through that? Like, what are some of the biggest, like aha moments or just like, man, I can't believe like now this is clicked. Everything has changed beyond that point. Well, I think for, for me and for a lot of people, it's, learning our relationship with food and, and how we use food, which is something a lot of us don't think about. And, you know, this, this term emotional eating is, is thrown out a lot. And 
some people don't realize how widespread that is and what that can actually look like. And emotional eating isn't, isn't always a negative thing. A lot of people think emotional eating means I'm sad and I'm crying, so I grab a pint of ice cream. And sure, that's a form of it, but also emotional eating could be I'm procrastinating and I really don't want to deal with X, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to busy myself with food. Emotional eating could look like I'm celebrating and I'm happy and I don't know how to do that without food. That's what I do is when I'm celebrating, I turn to food and that's emotional eating, right? Emotional eating could be I'm, I'm lonely and I'm using food to fill a void. So it can look like a lot of things. And most people don't really look at that in terms of how do you use food? And very few of us, there are some lucky people that fall in this category, but very few, few of us can say we solely use food as fuel. And that's it. We use food because we're physically hungry and we need fuel. And then we stop eating when we're satiated and we're good. And that's it. And there are very few people that meet that criteria. So most of us are using food for other reasons. And when we start to look at that and dig into that, then we can say, okay, now that I know I'm using food for X, Y, and Z reasons, let me look at what else I can do to address those things. If I'm using food because I'm lonely, how can I actually address my loneliness? Because food is not doing that. If I'm using food because I'm stressed, what can I do to create more healthy stress management in my life? If I'm using food because I'm procrastinating, what can I do to address my procrastination tendencies head on? If I'm using food because I'm celebrating, how else can I celebrate? What else can I do if I'm using food as reward, what else can I do to reward myself? But you need to understand how you're using food in order to be able to do something about it. And that was really eye-opening for me is learning how I used food and then finding alternative ways to you know, meet those needs that weren't food. And for most people, that is, that is a huge part of the equation is understanding that, understanding their relationship with food, understanding their, their tendencies towards self-sabotage and how food may be a form of self-sabotage um, and how their thinking may be self-sabotaging their efforts. So I find that was big for me and it's big for most people. Yeah. And I would imagine that your relationship with food is so deeply entrenched. And I'm sure this has to do with how we were raised perhaps and like our parents yeah. or our caregivers. <laughs> and, you know, I have, I have two kids that are six and eight and I'm super cognizant of the way of my own relationship with food so that I'm not projecting things onto them and teaching them, you know, healthy food management and something you talked mm -hmm. about with food and treats and rewards, you know, kindergartners, what do they want? They want yeah. candy and they want ice cream and the yeah. teachers are giving them, you know, candy as treats and that's fine. But it's so important to think about, okay, what are some other ways I can reward my kid other than a treat? Or what are some other ways I can reward myself? You know, it just mm -hmm. thinking about these things and then to be able to address them instead of using that food as a coping mechanism is what it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. This is created at a very young age where we learn this association, right? Oh, you did something great. Let's go out for ice cream. Now we know we have this close connection between food is how you celebrate and food is how you reward or you're feeling sad here, let me give you this candy. This will cheer you up. Now we have this association that develops between sadness and turning to food. 
And it's why for most of us, when we talk about comfort foods, our comfort foods are foods that we had as kids, foods that we were given as kids when we weren't feeling well or when we were down or when we were celebrating. And all of these things start early on, which is why our relationship with food is so complicated because, you know, it started before we even remember and it probably got impaired before we even remember. And so we're having to undo years and decades of association and habit and, and this relationship that got built. So yeah, it is very complicated. And I talk to parents all the time about how they can, can work with their kids on preventing this from becoming an issue, which doesn't mean you can never use food to celebrate, but probably means you shouldn't always use food to celebrate and finding other ways to build different perspectives into that so that that relationship with food isn't just one track. Definitely. Can we switch it up? Let's have an experience mm -hmm. where we go, yeah. like, let's go to the park to celebrate, right? Mm -hmm. Like let's do, let's go to the dollar store and pick out whatever you want. Let's do, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a multitude of things, but just thinking about what are some other ways that we can do that. You know, I think yeah. about that even with my own self, like I had a great week. Let's celebrate with the Starbucks. Like, wait, uh -huh. Maybe I don't need Starbucks to celebrate. Like maybe sometimes I do, but maybe it can be like a really awesome pedicure. Maybe it can be going to my vibey coffee shop and sitting down. Maybe it can be yeah. taking a girlfriend out for a walk or for coffee or a lunch. And so just kind of thinking, it just feels like thinking outside the box yeah. about some of these things, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because we don't think about them. We just do them right They're They're habitually associated. So it's just like this happens and this happens. So we have to think to create these new associations and like you said before, even like writing out lists is really valuable because it kind of forces this data into our brain and it gives us that reminder, this thing that we can go back to and say, oh yeah, wait a minute, I can do that instead. I can do that instead. I can do that instead. And the more we do that, the more we create or recreate a new relationship with these responses, right? I feel this way, therefore I do X instead of Y, which is what I have been doing my whole life. So it takes time, right? When at its core, it's really habit change. And we know when you change habit, it takes time and consistency. So you have to keep doing and keep doing and keep doing for it to become natural. It's a slow burn. <laughs> it's a slow burn, but a really, really worthwhile one. Changing habits can be so hard for people because like you know, the longer you've been doing something, the more intrinsic that habit is, and the more difficult it is to, you know, that habit loop is always going to be there. So we got to replace, you know, this thing with something else. And so often I would love to dive into, you know, we're, we're on this train and we're, we're, we're doing great and we're on track and we are on plan and we are feeling ourselves and then something happens, right? Maybe your kids get sick. Maybe your dog gets sick. Maybe you get sick. Right. And then you just like fall off track or like, any, anything can happen for my, in my house. A lot of times it's sickness mm -hmm. and that falls into this, you know, for some people that can be a complete derailment of all their progress. Like what are some ideas and some ways people can really try and circumnavigate this all or nothing or like this one thing has happened. And now we are just like the wagon is rolling down the hill and it's on mm -hmm. fire. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what you just said is that the most vital part of that is the all or nothing, right? It's a cognitive distortion, this black and white. I'm either 100% on the wagon or I'm 100% off the wagon. And there is nothing in between. And the reality is that the in-between is actually where we want to live. 
and where we want to be all the time instead of the black and the white we want to be in the gray because when we're all the way to this extreme it's really really difficult to maintain and it's why you see people go on diets all the time and they last three weeks because that's about the point where people say screw it i can't do this anymore this is too hard this is too much this is too overwhelming and what they do is they don't just back down here they go all the way over here mm -hmm. right and if they were doing you know following an eating plan that were more moderate that were a, a little more balanced that allowed for some flexibility it wouldn't require that rebellion response right they would have all of this wiggle room built into it and when we're all the way over here we don't have that wiggle room and so a lot of times for using your example of getting sick when people get sick, if there's already all over here, when they get sick, it's an opportunity for them to say, let me go all the way over here. And we're almost looking for that when we're too extreme with ourselves. So one piece of this is really looking at how your life is all the time and figuring out a way to make it more balanced, to make it you know, something that allows for a little fluidity and a little flexibility so that you can say, today I'm feeling like I need this versus today I'm feeling like I need that and I'm allowed, right? And put, putting that in place for yourself. But then looking at, okay, things happen. We do get sick. What do I need in that place? And what takes care of me in that place? What feels good in that place? And when we ask ourselves that question, sometimes it changes the answer. It changes what we go to. And I talk to people a lot about this just in questioning things with food, right? We, we see something, maybe we walk past a Cinnabon and we smell it and we see it and we go, oh, I really want that. And, it, and you can have that, right? You should be able to have that. But it's also important to ask yourself, one, why do you want it? And two, how are you going to feel after you eat it? And most of us don't feel great after inhaling a cinnamon roll. And, you know, we may have, you know, self-attack that comes on for that of where we're beating ourselves up for not feeling like we didn't have self-control. We may feel physically uncomfortable. We may struggle with digestion. We may feel bloated and gross and uncomfortable and say, Ugh, why did I eat that? And maybe the answer is, well, if I had planned to have it, like next Friday, I'm gonna go get a cinnamon roll one, then we feel good about it because we feel in control. We don't feel like over, we got overpowered by food. And maybe we also address how much of that cinnamon roll do I need to eat to feel good and to not cross over into that place where I feel kind of gross. And maybe what that means is I plan a cinnamon roll on Friday and I plan to split it with a friend of mine because half of it is enough for me to feel satiated, feel content, feel like I got the, the enjoyment out of it. And just enough so that I don't feel uncomfortable or, you know, physically unpleasant in any way. And that's the place I want to live, the place where I allow myself to have it in a controlled way, and in a way where I'm not going overboard and it's overpowering me and making me feel unpleasant. So a lot of times there's a planning component to it as well to avoid, again, that, that black and white, all or nothing mentality that, that often sets us up for failure. Definitely. I'm, I'm such a fan of that. And I love the example that you used because I feel like the idea or the notion of like a planned treat, a planned indulgent might feel foreign to some people like, Oh, I'm going to plan when I'm going to have a treat, but mm -hmm. it's so powerful because something 
if you missed this, this is a very key thing that I heard you say is that you're taking back the power. Yep. You are in control when you say, you know what, we're going to all go as a family and we're going to go celebrate so-and-so's kindergarten graduation. And we are all going to get ice cream because it's out of the norm for us. And you're going to freaking enjoy that ice cream. You might not eat all of it. As you should. Yes, exactly. If you're going to get it and you're going to treat yourself to it, you should enjoy Enjoy it. it. Yes. But like the notion that it's planned and it's like, it's a, it's an event, it's a thing. And you can think about, well, do I want to get the small one? Do I need the cone? Do I not need the cone? Do I want to split this with a friend? Do I want to throw it away when I'm halfway done? Cause I really feel sick after that. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that just the payoff seems so much bigger when it's that versus it's, you know, a handful of your kids leftover Easter candy and like, Hey, it's May when we're recording this, right? It's like, meh, it's not that great. Like we thought we wanted it. It was just this indulgence, but it wasn't worth it. And we were powerless over that versus us taking the power back. Exactly. And And that perception of power is, is key to how we feel about ourselves. And I talk to people a lot who work in offices where there's maybe a a candy bowl or a break room filled with junk food. And people really struggle in those environments because again, they feel like that candy bowl or that break room junk food has this power over them. Like it's calling them and they feel like they have no self-control and no willpower. And what I do with them is I tell them, what if you had a situation in which where you wanted candy or you wanted chips or whatever it was, you a hundred percent allowed yourself to do that, but you bought it for yourself. You didn't take the freebies that were just available to you. So if you really want candy, run down to 7-Eleven or the, the grocery store or whatever it is down at the bottom of your office building and go buy that candy bar instead of taking that freebie. And in that situation, one, they're in control of it. They get to decide do I really want this? And am I going to give this to myself as opposed to saying, oh, it's free and I'm taking it and I have no power. Mm. And what tends to happen is they rarely go buy candy because now they're in control of it. Do they get it every now and then? Sure. And hopefully enjoy the hell out of it, but they're in control of it now. It's not this food overpowering them and they, they perceive themselves as being in control. And that is the most powerful thing for people is believing in their, their own self-control, their own willpower. And I tell people all the time, we have infinite supplies of willpower. It's just our perception of that willpower that, that has impact on us. So when we perceive ourselves as having no willpower, that's when we feel out of control and we feel down on ourselves. But when we perceive ourselves as being capable and in control, I mean, it's limitless what we can do for ourselves. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say like, oh, I don't, I don't have any willpower. I don't have any control over that. Then like you actually don't, but it's, uh, it's almost like a muscle that we're working out. You know, when you, when you do your bicep curls and you grow up in weight, you are building that muscle is this muscle memory, right? We have to flex this muscle for us to get better at it, for us to build muscle. And it's the same notion I think about when we are, testing our willpower, when we are building our power, when we are building our control with this food, it's, it's an exercise that you have to work at. And then when you do these things like the, I love the example, the Seven Eleven, you're going to go buy the candy and you're going to say no to the freebies or go buy it for yourself. Like every time you go through that, 
no matter the outcome, looking at that as like, that was an opportunity for me to work that muscle, to build that muscle. It's just, an, it's an opportunity for me to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all of our, you know, behavior that falls in the, the self-sabotage camp, right? It's, it's all about building that muscle and feeling stronger in that way, because, you know, we've done it a lot. And, you know, using your bicep curls example, right? The more you do, the stronger you feel. And the more you do this or engage in these types of behaviors, the, the stronger you feel about your own capabilities. Mm, definitely. I would love to dig into self-sabotage a little bit. This is something that's so interesting to me. It comes up a lot with my one-on-one -on -one clients. It comes up so often in conversation. I even experience it myself personally, right? Like I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm human. But we all do. I say that all the time. Nobody is immune to this. Right. And it feels like this mystical, like thing that no one understands. Why are we self-sabotaging? You know, you read the books on it and you read this. What is your take? Cause I know you do a lot of coaching with people on self-sabotage. Yep. What's your take on that? And this? I have a book on it as well. <laughs> um, Adds to my list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, self-sabotage is fascinating. Cause like I said, we all do it and it's a huge part of our, our struggles with weight, which is kind of how I ended up specializing in, in this area of self-sabotage as well. Um, because so much of our struggle with weight loss is self-sabotage mm -hmm. and, you know, self-sabotage definitively is really just standing in your own way um, you know, wanting something and, and actively taking steps to prevent yourself from getting it. So, you know, example would be, you know, you want a job, but you don't apply for it. You want to be in a relationship, but you don't put yourself out there for dating. You want weight loss, but you're constantly saying I'll start tomorrow, or, you know, I can't do it. Or, you know, well, I screwed that up. Might as well just eat terribly all weekend and then start again on Monday, right? These are all forms of self-sabotage. And self-sabotage is rooted in, in a lot of the things we talked about, some of our, our early association, all or nothing thinking is a huge way that we create self-sabotage, um, self-doubt, imposter syndrome, control issues, fear. There are so many fears at the root of our self-sabotage, fears, fear of success, fear of failure, fear of change, fear of judgment, right? All of these things tie into why and how we self-sabotage and then ultimately set us up to never achieve the thing that we want to achieve. And again, that might be weight management. It might be self-control. It might be a promotion. It might be a relationship. You know, it might be financial security. There are all these things that we want and our behaviors actively self-sabotage. Mm. So. I see it a lot. I was speaking with a client yesterday about this and she's almost got this glass ceiling that she keeps hitting. And there's this, this interesting middle where she's either way above where she wants to be with her weight goals, or she's, you know, at this goal, but there's this threshold that she just cannot break through. And she knows she's self-sabotaging. What are some ways we can kind of find out like the why behind it or the, this underlying, like, I believe that it is one of the fears, right? Yeah. It's basically that's, a form. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. How can we <laughs> dig into why or why they're doing this? Basically, how can I, what are some things I can ask myself to figure out why I'm doing this? Well, when we're, we're fear is often at the root of it for most people. And when we're trying to dig into that, we really need to look at what is scary 
Mm. And, you know, for using that example, probably what's scary is on the other side of achieving that. And when we think about, you know, I want X. All right, that sounds good. And we never stop to look at, okay, well, why might, why might I be scared of that? Are there additional pressures that get added into my life if I achieve that? Is there the what now effect, right? I've been wanting this my whole life. And if I suddenly get it, then what? This is what I've been focused on. What do I focus on then? Or, you know, there's also a fear of failing after succeeding, right? The whole idea of maybe I achieve this weight loss, but then what if I, I, I fall back again and everybody knows that and everyone sees it and everybody judges me? right? There's this fear of expectations associated with achieving success and how people might look at you and expect things from, from you in a different way. So there are all these potential things that could be scary. And we need to start by asking ourselves that. What would be, what would be scary about this? If I achieve this thing that I want, sure, there are a lot of great things, but what are some of the things that might not be so great if I achieve this? And, and let me identify those things first and foremost Again, to be able to say, okay, now what do I do about that? If I am scared of this, what can I do to address that fear? What can I do to overcome that fear? And, you know, that can look like a million different things based on, on who you are and, and what the particular issue is for you. But again, you can't get around it until you look at it. Mm. That's so often the scariest part, I think, for, for us, for people, mm -hmm. no matter what it is you're facing. Mm-hmm to really like peel back the onion layers, right? Like to ask why five or 10 times I've done yep. some powerful journaling exercises led by mentors and therapists where, you know, we start with a question and then we kind of layer and just like keep asking, right. And then what, okay. Mm -hmm. And if, well, and if that's true. And then what, yep. and then what, and it's, it's scary. It almost feels like you're like standing in front of your partner naked for the first time. You're just like, Oh, it's so vulnerable yes, to exactly. see it and to say it and to acknowledge it. But if we don't acknowledge it, that's where shame comes in, I believe. And that's where, you know, it, we just and keep we perpetuating this yeah. fear and it never goes away. So it's while it can feel scary to address why I am afraid of this weight loss success or why I'm afraid of making a million dollars or whatever that might be to, you know, figuratively speaking, get naked and figure it out, right? Like peel the bandaid off, get naked in yeah. front of your partner, do the thing, right? Like it's scary, but once you do it, then it becomes a little bit easier to keep going down this yeah. journey. Well, and, and like you talked about, we're talking about facing fears, but sometimes looking at those fears is the fear. Yes. Right? And, yes. And that can be the scariest part of the whole thing. So even just overcoming that hurdle makes facing the fears that you identify that much easier because you've done the hardest part, right? And, and just looking at it, identifying it, saying it out loud, saying it in front of somebody, exposing yourself in that way, creating that vulnerability, that can be the scariest part of the whole thing. And there is so much relief that comes from that, from, from finally addressing that and putting it out there that everything else can feel a little easier from mm. there. Definitely. And I think too, the notion that knowing that if this is you, like you're not alone, you are not the only person dealing with this and, you know, not even in the minority. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> almost just giving yourself the permission, like we're going to mess up. That's okay. 
Like when, when we are working through wellness, when you're working through weight loss, when you're working through these big goals, it's, you know, it isn't this all or nothing mentality. It's like, you're gonna screw it up and that's okay. And that's almost a part of the journey. That's a part of the learning. And it's like, I love the infographs or the memes on Instagram that you see that's like journey or progress is not like do, 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 you know, this like perfect linear line. It's, you know, it's up and then it's down Mm -hmm. and then it's down and down and then it's up and then it's down. And as long as there is an upward trend or a forward progress trend, like every time you mess up, it's learning, we're learning. And as long as you're moving forward and you just can pick up and start again, I call it starting again instead of starting over because starting over feels so daunting. But if you have something not go your way, if you didn't, you didn't resist the cinnamon roll from Cinnabon, you know, you drank too much one night. Like, can we, can we ditch the shame? Can we talk about like ditching the shame and like, just begin again. And embracing the fact that you're human. And yeah. that's part of being human. And everybody has those same struggles. We're not perfect. We're not supposed to be perfect. And what do we get from that experience where maybe we messed up or maybe we made a mistake or we don't like how we handled something or how we behaved? We get an opportunity to look at it and learn from it and grow from it and change how we address that type of situation in the future. So you know, the idea of starting again versus starting over is, is great because you don't start from scratch. You start from where you are and where you are has all of this learning and all of this growth associated with it. So you're not going back to here. You're just here. And maybe you made a mistake or whatever happened, but you're starting from here. You're not starting from where you were before. That's such a comforting thought. It's such a, you know, forgiving thought to think like that. And I, I think, I think about it the way of, you know, when you mess up, when you have this D you know, when you, you veer off course a little while and you start back again, where we were starting, if we can come at ourselves with compassion, like, you know, if like a friend, treat yourself like a friend, I say uh-huh. like, talk to yourself the way you talk to your child or the way you talk to your best girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't beat up on them. Right. Like, yeah. of course. But we beat up on ourselves so easily. You know, I I use this example all the time. We could go through the day doing 100 things. And if we do 99 of them right and one of them wrong, we're we're beating ourselves up and saying, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I messed that up. I'm always screwing things up. And if it were a friend, we would be saying, oh, my God, you're amazing. You did 99% of things right today. How incredible are you? And that friend would be like, yeah, I'm awesome. This feels great. But that's not how we talk to ourselves. We hold ourselves to these completely different standards, these unachievable standards that make us feel bad about ourselves. And there's nothing motivating about that. It doesn't feel good and it doesn't drive us forward. It makes us believe we're incapable and creates behavior that supports that belief, Mm. like self-sabotage. What is that? Like, what is that thing where we focus on what we didn't do versus what we did? Like the, I can, I can. Cognitive distortion called cognitive distortion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in in a simplified standpoint, cognitive distortions are just ways we, we thinking errors, basically Mm -hmm. ways we distort the truth to fit into these schemas. All or nothing thinking is one of those, right? The idea that there's only this and there's only this, and there's nothing in between is a cognitive distortion. Dwelling on the negative is a cognitive distortion, right? The idea that, you know, you could have, you know, 99 pieces of positive evidence and one of negative, and we say, oh, this is all negative. 
and we just ignore this and we put all of the emphasis on this. It's a thinking error. And so part of cognitive behavioral therapy is challenging these thinking errors to say, let's look at the actual evidence and let's see that we have 99% of things supporting something and 1% of things not. In what situation might you choose the thing where 1% of the data goes against it and 99% of it goes for it? And obviously people will naturally say, well, never, that's, that's crazy. And so starting to look at it through that lens, almost like you're investigating and you're looking for facts and data to support your thinking. And what we find is that most of the facts and data don't support a lot of this thinking. And so we need to change the way we think to fit the evidence. That is brilliant. And <laughs> that's so fascinating. I love that. And I think that's, I, I don't think most of us would think about it that way. And when you think about like a, a, a drug that is being tested, they're like, it's 99% effective. We're like, uh-huh. Hallelujah, that's right? great. And if we said it were 1% effective, we would not take it. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. this is sort of the root of cognitive behavioral therapy is looking at these thinking errors and, and really challenging them and looking at, you know, evidence that supports or, or refutes that, that the way that we think so that we can start to change the way we think. Because again, the way we think is habit too. And so we have to change that the same way we would change any habit with time and consistency, repetition, right? That's how we change habits. So it's no different with the way we think. The way we think is habit. And it's never too late for somebody, right? It's never too late. Never too late. I, I, if you're, maybe you're not in your twenties anymore, right? I'm not in my twenties anymore. I'm almost out of my thirties, right? Like it's, if you're still breathing, there's still capacity for change never too late. Absolutely. What are, what are some ways if people are super interested in diving deeper with you, what are some ways they can learn from you and work with you? Um, well, you can, I have a bunch of programs, like I said, and, and a bunch of free guides and things like that. You can get on my website, um, the weightlosstherapist.com or me only um, has all of my info, all of my free guides and all of that. Um, for people who are, well, I have a couple books. I have a book on Amazon Shatter the Yo-Yo, which is about breaking diet dependence and, and managing your weight on your own. And then I have the self-sabotage behavior workbook, which is exactly what it sounds like mm. a way for people to kind of work on challenging and changing their self-sabotaging behavior. Um, I also have a couple coaching programs, um, the do it right weight loss coaching program, which is about doing losing weight the right way, um, the sustainable way, the non-diet based way, um, which is, you know, addressing a lot of the things I just talked about. And then I have a, the Sabotage Warrior coaching program, which is more of a deep dive into challenging and changing self-sabotage behavior. Mm. So you can find all of that stuff on my website or my social media. Yeah. I, I love it. We'll be sure I'll link a lot of your, your websites. We'll link some um, options for them to purchase the book or the downloads. So if you guys want to learn some more from Dr. Candace Setti, you can go give her a follow and go check out her website. This is, I could geek out on this and talk about this <laughs> for hours. I love just the deeper dive on wellness and what that looks like, because I feel like so often, you know, we're in so many different things. Then we have so much on our plates and this whole idea of health and wellness, it seems so black and white, all or nothing, like we mentioned earlier, but it, it truly is like 
so much deeper than that. And I love the science you bring to this. I love the behavioral therapy you bring to this. I mean, this is the stuff that we're missing. Like this is the good stuff. (laughs) This is the meat of the sandwich. Okay. This is like the goodness inside the Oreo. This is all the really good stuff. So I just, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge and your goodness with my listeners. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I agree. Obviously I could and do talk about this stuff all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I do think it is, you know, the really important stuff that most people are missing. And so my goal is to, to get that knowledge and awareness out there as much as possible. So people can, can really do these things to make change and make change just once right? Not feel like they have to keep doing this over and over and over again, because it is the best way to suck away all of your self-efficacy beliefs and, and, you know, your self-esteem really. Absolutely. It's like beating your head against a wall. Like what is the the definition of insanity Mm -hmm. doing the same thing over and over and not getting the result you want. So, cause our life is meant to be enjoyed. Our life is meant to be lived and lived well. And when you feel good, from the inside out, mentally, emotionally, physically, you can just enjoy this life that we get to live more, you know, that's concept. Yeah. Truly my belief. I mean, like life is meant to be enjoyed, but the better I feel, the more I can truly enjoy it. So Mm -hmm. the fact that you're helping people along this journey is so awesome. So make sure you guys go give Dr. Candace a follow, and we will link, like I said, her website and all of her goodies in the podcast show notes, but Thank you for your time. And thank you for chatting. If you love this episode, y'all be sure and take a screenshot of it, share it to your stories, text it to your mama, text it to your bestie, text it to someone that you think needs to hear it because knowledge is power. And the more we can share, the more other people can hear things like this that might need it the most. All right. Y'all take care. Thank you. you can help me why don't you screenshot this podcast and share it to your social media tag me my instagram is at the fit life with jessica take it another step further and leave me a review and a five-star rating in apple podcast it would mean the world to me thanks friend mm-hmm.